Hello, Ian. Hello, Alexis. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, I would assess my safe as an 8.5 out of 10. How about you? Stop laughing, I'm very, We just had fish and chips, so we're, we we're pretty oh, good. That's good. That's a just, point just, at least right there. Right? <laughs> well, uh, first off, thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, talk with me, uh, both of you. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm excited. Uh, call this simulator. Yeah, sorry, I totally ignored you the first time you suggested it. It wasn't because I didn't want to, it was because I was busy. I am. insane amounts of work. <laughs> as, as an Alexis, obviously. I, I used the verb talk and I got no response. <laughs> oh no, it's so sad. It's a bug, not a feature. Apologies. <laughs> it's fine. All right. So um, one thing that um, Benson and I kind of went back and forth on is uh, what would you call Cultist Simulator? Even on the Steam page, there's a couple different tags like uh, <laughs> it's a simulation, it's a card game, but it's also an RPG and story. I mean, so. Where does this, where, how would you describe the game and where would you place it sort of in the spectrum of games now? I, I would call it a typically unclassifiable Alexis Kennedy game. Which is why he's not doing the marketing. But it's a bang of my fucking life. What, what, what kind of game would you call Southern I mean, Sea? What the, kind of game would you call Poor London? It's always bedeviled us, but Lottie has a sensible answer. Well, yes and no. I mean, what we've been saying to people when we've been meeting them in person at, at events um, or been pitching to press is a variation of um, a Lovecraftian horror card game. Um, or possibly a Lovecraftian strategy card game. Um, because Lovecraftian is important, because I think that sets a lot of very useful milestones for people who haven't heard of Alexis or haven't played any, any games um, like of Simulator before, which is basically everyone, because it's, very, it's a very odd game. Um, card game is obviously important too, because I don't want people being shocked when they open up the game and they see loads of cards. Um, and, and what sits between those two words, I think, varies depending on the person you're speaking to. Um, so strategy obviously means, you know, one thing for lots of people. Um, horror will attract other people. Um, but, but I mean, AK is right. Like, it, is, it isn't an obvious genre filler, mm-hmm. um, which is both really enjoyable because I think, this, you know, the saturation of the games market means that that uniqueness is really important, but also very difficult because we have to get it across to people in, in a sentence that they want to play it. Um, I, think, I think the one word I, I, that, that applies uncomplicatedly to it is, is a narrative game. Yes, but again, even that in context is quite... Yeah, it is. So, you know, people people often hear narrative games and they think it's... Visual novel. Visual novel or CRPG or interactive fiction or something. But but there's text in it. It's (laughs) about the story. (laughs) Well, it's a narrative generation game, kind of, I feel. Mm. Um, So you mentioned, uh, Lottie, you know, that uh, you're you're making a point of uh, saying that it's a Lovecraftian game. Um, And that's, I think, one of the clear influences. Do you guys have other... um, uh, literary or weird fiction um, sources that you kind of draw from? I mean, not just for this, I think, you know, Sunless Sea and Fall in London both draw on those kinds of things too, but uh, who are some of your other um, favorite uh, thematic uh, influences and authors? So thematically, uh, Mervyn Peake uh, is, is always up there. Oh, he's so great. He is so great. He's, so, so my favorite quote about Mervyn Peake is something that Anthony Burgess, another English uh, author, said about him, which is that, Peake's work is a rich wine of fancy, chilled by the intellect to just the right temperature. And that's really the really? vibe we're going for, is, is, is stuff that is, is um, you know, frequently fucking out there, uh, <laughs> but, but does demand you pay attention and does care specifically about internal tone consistency. So Mervyn Peake's one, 
Roger Zanassi is another who I don't mention nearly often enough. I read some Zanassi uh, early on in my life that sort of blew the top off my brain. And both in um, so, so the things I think I take from Zanassi, he was a very poetic writer. He, a lot of his stuff is almost like prose poetry, uh, which which I really responded to. And uh, he was a very sardonic writer. And I think that sardonicism is something I, I, I aspire to um, as well. And a lot of Zelaznian uh, plots and characters are complex, mystical, anti-heroic intrigue. Uh, and, and I think, again, you know, that, those are the terms we would recognise again and again. And I think the, the, a couple of other influences, uh, Ursula Le Guin and, and Mary Renault. So... Uh, Le Guin, obviously, huge name in um, in fantasy, and I read uh, C again, very young. And a lot of what I took from that was the an interest in building magic systems that don't feel like physics, um, but also don't feel or, or like superpowers, but also don't feel inconsistent. You know, so you 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 read Le Guin fantasy, and you have an idea that there are rules. And they are numinous and unpredictable and unconventional rules, but they're there. And Mary Renault, um, who, who was one of the sort of uh, less obvious influences in Sunless Sea as well, Renault had a lot of stuff about um, uh, Bronze Age Greece, uh, often mythologically inflected, often historically inflected. She wrote stuff about the life of, of um historical Theseus, um, about retainers of Alexander, um, about um, Greek actors. And uh, she, she's got one of the things I, I really respond to in writers, which is really telling, poignant, colourful, pithy prose. And a sentence of, of Renault is the kind of thing you can read and, and quote a decade later. And also, again, the sense of scratching at mysterious things just below the skin of the world. A lot of Renault's characters interact with Greek gods. Greek gods never manifest physically in the world. They're always seen through omens and internal experience. Is that? Yeah, but they're a real presence. And I think that's one of the things that came through specifically the treatment of the hours in, in the culture simulator is, is, is these things that are off stage, but fundamentally important. And that's obviously a, um, I mean, that, that's something that, you know, coming back to Lovecraft, there's always these sort of powers that are, you know, not visible or necessarily physical, but they're there. And, yeah, um, definitely get the sense that that's a, a theme throughout the game as well. There's um, not just the, um, you, you know, you wind up uh, at some point becoming hunted, uh, but there's also these, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out my way through the, the sort of dream world that you, um you know, this path through the forest and uh, all of these things are sort of fitting together. And like you said, there's rules that you can, you you know that rules are there, but you're not sure what they are exactly. I think that's... Uh, yeah, and that's, that's uh, we, we've, I mean, the, the other big influence, which I mentioned with caution, obviously, is David Lynch. So the thing about Lynch <laughs> is, that, is that, you know, it, it 80% makes sense. And 80% absolutely makes sense, but the last 20% is left up to you. But he has something there. Sometimes he's better at explicating it than other times. But the more you 
steep in Mulholland Drive or peaks or something, the more you get a sense of what's going on. And um, uh, and you can't get away with leaving out the last 20 percent in a game, especially a system driven game like Cultist Simulator in the same way. But I did want this this layering effect that you you, you, you have repeated experiences with, with, with it and things that at the beginning seem like whimsy. By the time you get um, uh, a few hours in, the reaction I'm looking for is, holy fuck, that wasn't a throwaway phrase. Uh, that was the key to the whole process. Holy fuck, that wasn't a coincidence that that, that um, image came up twice. That image is a really fundamental thing that we, we keep coming back to. And what Lottie and I have said, again, to go back to what kind of game this is, it's the kind of game where the game is figuring out the game. So we really wanted something that where you, uh, your experience in the gameplay is that of the occultist who is trying to understand the hidden meanings um, uh, under the world. So we want to induce that sense of, again, of holy crap, that actually makes sense now that I've seen it from this side. And the difficulty of the design has been balancing the holy crap moments with the what the crap moments. You know, none of this can be printed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're hoping to actually run the uh, the uh, audio, but uh, if okay. Well, I apologize anyone who's listening in advance. I do. I, I, I got I got uh, <laughs> my feedback uh, for my GDC talk back uh, uh, the other week, and and um, most of it was very positive. But somebody did complain that I'd sw- uh, been so prone to profanity that they were never going to attend another talk of mine again. Oh, so I apologize in advance here if I if I cross any. <laughs> no, we don't have any kind of problem with. Uh, with that's totally fine. Um, so uh, you have mentioned Sunless Seas, Fallen London, um, and this is, I'm not sure if this is existing in that same universe or not, but either way, what have you taken, there are similarities, I feel, and what, what have you taken from the Fallen London world or the development uh, process? Uh, that's also a game about kind of constructing a narrative out of these kind of bits that you find in the game. Um, what, I guess, what has made the uh, the shift over to Cultist Simulator, and what have you kind of left back with uh, Sunless Seas and? Uh, so, so first of all, it doesn't share continuity with, with Fallen London. There's a couple of, of um, references which which aficionados of, of Fallen London or Sunless Sea would recognise, but there's no there's no continuity crossover. But I think. So I, I, a lot of people worked on Forward London over the years, and although I wrote on most of the words for Sunday Sea, a lot of other people contributed. Uh, but obviously, I was the creative direction in both cases. And uh, you, you know, we all come back to our obsessions and our uh, 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 and our preoccupations. So things uh, about about death or candles or revelation um, or, or um, you know books. Uh, just, just, just unnecessarily arc points that, that we keep coming back to because I'm a big old goth. And so, <laughs> so, you know, both these, these games are fundamentally written by people who are big old goths. Um, so that, the, the, the tone is, I think, uh, a, a certain amount of Fallen Under the Sun and Sea is bonkers absurdist humour. There is humour in Cultist Simulator, but it is, uh, a, 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 a slightly more somber game in a lot of places, mm. but the so, so, so the tone is is, is just, it's the kind of stuff I write, 
Um, even when I was writing for, for, for Stellaris and Dragon Age, you know, it's, it's, it's all death and time. Uh, and in terms of, of, of development lessons, in terms of, of approaches, I started to talk about the kind of work I did as resource-based narrative. So all my work has been narrative. All of it has, has been text-centric. Uh, a lot of it has been described as interactive fiction. But what it does that not that most interactive fiction doesn't, by no means all, but most interactive fiction doesn't, it does concentrate on, on resource management. You're always trying to get stuff to do stuff with or get stuff in order to avoid um, stuff being done to you. <laughs> Dying of despair, yes, which happens to be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so it, that, 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 that lends tension um, to it, and it provides stakes and meaning to what you're doing. It also means that you, you necessarily give up some of the more free-form stuff of other kinds of interactive fiction, uh, because it has to keep being tethered back to the resource. But that keeps providing a, a reason to, to do things and a reason to avoid doing other things. So it makes the choice, I think, more real. So that was the, one of the big things I took away from Fall London. But I wanted to move away from the choice-based, multiple-choice approach that I'd taken in, in very nearly everything for years, where you're fundamentally presented with, with options which may or may not be unlocked, and move to something where you can make a choice at any point in the game. So in Cultist Simulator, you've usually got about five timers available and at any point you can pause the game and take something out of a, uh, 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 take a card out of a, a verb or put it back in because you change your mind about what you're doing or you realize you need to do something else or you're about to starve to death or go mad or, or be arrested by the suppression bureau. Um, or you decide you're going to use reason rather than passion to approach this thing. So I, I wanted a game that was having a constant conversation with you rather than this sort of question response catechism thing. Uh, we're, we're saying all the time, here's what's happening. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? So you could keep on responding to it. I think there's also an interesting um, evolution of the idea of control in your games. Go on. Well, if you think about Fallen London, um, you know, it's a free-to-play game, um, and you have multiple choices that you can make, um, but they tend to revolve around the four major stats. Yeah. Um, and the game itself fundamentally limits the player. You have a certain amount of actions that you can do, and then the game says stop. And then you get onto to C, which is, I think, a freer game because it's not free to play. Um, and again, you have lots of different things you can do. You can visit the islands in any order that you like. And the kind of um, procedure generation of the world means that you experience it in a variety of different ways. And then you ha- enter into more thematic ideas of control with the kind of the gods of the sea um, that you don't actually control. You can kind of placate and understand, but you never fully control any of that world. You, you really survive in it. And then you get to Cosmic Simulator, where I think it's probably the most free-flowing narrative that you've made to date. Um, but you have all these constant draws in your attention with all these different timers, but really significantly you can pause. And as you just said, you can actually mm. change resource on the fly, provided that you've not locked it in or it's not got a kind of magnetic requirement or something. Um, and again, this is something that you mentioned, Ian, about um, the ideas of, of uh, being involved with powers that you kind of understand, but again, you don't control. Like there is this entire pantheon of ours who are very relevant, but whom you never can conjure. You can never... Um, do more than invoke them, hopefully, with a very powerful ally who's been mates with them for a while. Yeah. Um, so I think controls are really significant, I think, in your work. I think you're right, and I think, I think one of the journeys that designers often go on is learning to trust the player more. And in Summer Sea, the player was, was seeded a lot more trust than um, in Forward London. And in Culture Simulator, it, it goes... Further still. 
it, it, it fundamentally gives you something and says, says do 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 something with it. But again, I wanted, wanted it to be a conversation very early builds of the game. The, the game spent a lot of time shrugging at you and, and saying, uh, you know, you can't use that thing or that other thing. For the last couple of months have really been a polishing process of finding ways to encourage the player to ask questions that make sense more often. Yeah. Sure. To that point, um, I, the, I've seen the discussion forums are very active. How's the feedback been in general? It sounds like, um, you know, still a very active uh, group of uh, beta testers. Um, yeah, what have you, uh, what have you learned from them or maybe a couple top uh, points? It has been really broadly positive. Um, they've been a wonderful community in every possible way. Um, we've never had like a mean word from them. Um, one thing that we talk about a lot, uh, which they definitely fall pro to, is something we call Veterans Curse, which is the idea that they are um, super invested in the game. They've played all variety of different builds and they're well versed as much as they can be in the actual law going on behind the scenes. Um, and what that tends to mean is that they will report quite um, specific late game bugs because that's what they're interested in after, what, six, 12 months yeah. of playing the game repeatedly over and over. And they will forego mentioning some really significant early game stuff or user experience stuff because by now they're acclimatized to it. So in one respect, that's brilliant because we could never give the game to a random schmo on the street and they'd say, well, actually, this law doesn't match up with the law that you get eight hours into the game. But equally, um, when we launch the game uh, next week, we're going to get a lot of, of, of new players, I hope, saying things like, why can't I save the game? Or, you know, like, mm-hmm. did you forget to put in the ability to play it on Mac? Um, and that's the kind of stuff that, that you need to really watch out for, because it sounds really obvious, but but there is a blind side if you're constantly talking to the same group of people. Um, but I don't know if you have specific things. That yeah, I do. Know. I think I think that's just cursing. That was one of the mistakes I made this on the sea, was not taking sufficient account of that, because we... But by the time we launched, I was listening all the time to specific issues that people had very late game and addressing those. And so the early, you know, uh, Sun and Sea is famously a Marmite game, uh, and uh, that some people love and some people hate. And I think it's a, lot of the... a Marmite game, but okay. Yeah, so it's a pretty yeah. term. Hey, can we just have a tangent for a minute about yeah. how annoyed I was of the day? I was speaking to another American like yourself, and we answered a bunch of interview questions, and he came back and said, thanks, Lottie, those interview questions were really interesting. I'm now going to look up Apophenian and Marmite. And you can guess that the highfalutin sounding Apophenian <laughs> came from Alexis's quotes and Marmite came from mine. Because for any American listeners, Marmite is a, is a very divisive condiment in the UK, which all sensible people really like eating. I mean, you say condiment, I say waste product. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it probably is made from the bones of animals, but yeah. you know, how strong am I after eating it on toast? So there you go. But yeah, so Sunnessy it, it, was, was, was a divisive game, in part because the early um, game experience was, was, was um, very much think or swim. Um, so, so I think it, it is enormously useful getting players who know how to play your game better than you do, giving you extremely detailed feedback. Yeah. But it's easy to lose sight of the first 15 minutes of the game because they, they can't see it any more than you can. Um, at that point, it's, uh, and that's the most crucial 15 minutes. In terms of specific feedback, um, one of the, the uh, it, it's very difficult to design mysteries, even more than puzzles. And by mysteries, I mean things with open-ended answers. So the law of the game is, 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 is layered and layered and layered. And watching the players trying to work out, um, you know, what the origins of particular gods in the game are, um, or, or how certain things occurred and what the timeline is, inevitably, the things that you think are obvious 
completely opaque. And the things that you thought people would take months to get, they get in a day. Mm-hmm. So getting that constant feedback helps tune towards, you know, the way most people think most of the time, because obviously, uh, you know, not everybody thinks the same way. So, so mystery tuning, even more than puzzle tuning, is very useful. Lots of really strong feedback about how opaque the game was. Um, uh, I think was was it will probably prove to be the game's salvation. Mm-hmm. So around about like March, April, we got very very positive feedback. We got lots of people streaming the game and saying, oh, you know, we I meant to do it for an hour and it's been three. But we also got a little bit too much. What the fuck? And around about April, Lottie really began to lean on me to say this needs to be to have a few more breadcrumbs. And I kept saying, you know, that that'll come in the polish phase. And in the end, um, I agreed to start adding more breadcrumbs and locking down possibilities sooner. And it, it was a much bigger task than I realised. So I think I think that that kind of feedback as Focus to a, a keen point by Ms. Devon here um, was, was was pretty key. And I think the other thing is, Culture Simulation is one of those games, like a lot of games I make, where you you do the things you don't normally do in other games. So you know you 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 spend a lot of time reading books or translating books. You spend a lot of time working at something that's sort of vaguely implied to be probably an insurance company. <laughs> you spend a lot of time painting. You spend a lot of time sending other people off on expeditions. So, you know, some of these things, uh, I guess the last thing you have is other games. But but these are fundamentally non-combat activities and, and community games still consist a lot of, of combat and combat-like activities. And very useful feedback for the players again and again was, you know, some stuff, they're kind of, well, OK, you know, this is, this is quite, quite fun. Um, but it's basically filler. And some bits, people were, this is so cool! And I really want more of this. The, 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 um, the mechanic allows you to paint in the game. Uh, I, I let out, and you know, it's greeted with roars of enthusiasm. The mechanic that allows you to murder your, your prick boss at work. I should have guessed how popular that would, would be. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was, you know, even more popular than, than, than I expected. Um, so, so every time people r- responded with that kind of enthusiasm um, rather than amusement, that meant we could lean into uh, developing more of those things. But people getting attached to characters as well, I should have realised that, because, you know, as soon as you see a human face in a game, you have a different kind of response to it. It's why we put the officers at the top right in Summer Sea, even though it's sort of largely chrome, it doesn't, doesn't do much for the actual functionality. But people really develop attachments to different cultists in, in the game and mm. different attitudes to them and assumed personalities. It is kind of a game about isolation, too, which is interesting. I mean, yes. you're, you're very much a kind of shut in. Well, I mean, there's those, the different roles that you can um, take, but I, I definitely, as I'm playing it, feel like this is a person who's kind of, you're becoming wrapped up in their own um, obsessions and loneliness. And I mean, so you're, you're it's, it's, it's to the point that you made about like these are non-combat related activities, but you are kind of fighting these inner, very real um, forces of isolation, depression, and um, loneliness. I feel it's an interesting uh, feeling to get from a from a game. And one thing I wanted to find out too was like this the sense of discovery that you're. Um, I think it's very much a game about, as you said, you know, discovering uh, the we're, we're making your way through this mystery. Uh, do you? See this as a game that people are going to kind of, or is it meant to be something that players work out on their own? 
or do you see this kind of as um, something that people are going to get together and and look at and create wikis and um, and sort of a community-driven sort of um, solution to, to what you know what the game's about? So we talked about this earlier this evening, actually. Um, I think it has been designed as largely an individual exploit. Um, the whole Lovecraft thing tends to be a very isolated individual dealing with very large forces. Um, we want people to feel rewarded when they figure something out on their own. Um, and there aren't, uh, unless you snuck something in, um, deliberately sort of crowdfunding designed puzzles where we expect people to come up with like, you know, real world coordinates and find a thing. Um, There's one. <laughs> that having been said, um, we, we do think that uh, the game requires an unusual amount of, I don't know, like attention or, or kind of attention to detail, certainly, that maybe some players won't expect to have to give it, in which case I would genuinely expect a, a certain percentage of our player base to um, find themselves stuck on a particular bit of lore or a particular um, riddle later on in the game. And I would hope that they'd go to our community, which is part of the reason that we have invested in making sure that the community are happy and they have spaces they can talk. Um, and I, I'd love it if, if people play the game by themselves, they really enjoy it, and they get stuck on a bit and, and join the community as a result. Um, and that isn't me being like a really cynical marketing person and saying like mm, more people for the for the cult worship. Um, I, I genuinely think it's a it's an enjoyable social activity that they can they can do. And because of the way that you write, and because you give almost everything in in kind of glimpse form rather than saying here is a blueprint of actually what's going on behind the scenes, mm. I think that community stuff is incredibly rewarding because you will have one theory um, and it will cohere in your mind. You'll think yes, well the beach crow must be the same as the woman mentioned in this particular book bit of the game um, and someone else will come in and say no but there's this bit of law which contradicts that um, and I think you'll end up having a really interesting tapestry which may hopefully get close to what's actually going on. Absolutely so this, this is the thing I think there's, there's two things here I, I go further on the community but I wanted to make a game that had a community I wanted to make a game where, where people would want to talk about their experiences of emergent story in the game I wanted to ask people for their take on things that, that, that hadn't clicked or, or, or talk about their theories. I wanted, in short, to have a game where, where people um, theorised frantically on forums and discords, which is absolutely happening. Um, the, the, the community discord is a, a, a fur bent of, of theory. And um, I think as well, you, you design for the times you live in. I'm playing Deadfire at the moment. And when I have spent 50 minutes fosking about trying to find a quest item that doesn't seem to be where I expect it to be. I all tab out and I type something into Google because I just, I live in an era where that's, that's, that's the case. Mm-hmm. And I suspect some of the breadcrumbs we've laid down will be a bit less necessary in the long term because by the end of the first week, there will be guides out there. People who want to look. <laughs> Touch wood. <laughs> Touch wood. Well, no, I mean, you know, people would build guides at the alpha, but they stopped doing it because the game was changing so much every month. It was very hard to keep up. But I, I, I do like the idea of building community. And I think, so Lovecraft obviously is, 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 is the guy who casts a long shadow over all this. And reading Lovecraft is fundamentally a solitary activity. Reading is a solitary activity. But there is a community of discourse around response to Lovecraft. And there is a shared experience of reading that and responding to these elements and, and sharing a, a shiver or a, an eye roll. Or, well, we would never actually that And that's, that's also true. So I think, you know, on a much more modest scale, I want to, I want to create a community. I want to create something that people can 
enjoy optionally alone together. I think it's also um, a significant characteristic of horror. You know, in so many horror films that I've seen, if the character who was at, you know, at the mercy of some horrible force or individual had just like gone to the police or like gone to a mate's house, um, a lot of the, a lot of the horror would go away, right? Because there's some kind of practical, sensible things you can do to avoid fear. Yeah, don't go upstairs or don't go into the woods. Yeah, it's, yeah just leave. Go in a forest at night having sex with a jock. Yeah. Like all, all these useful life skills that we all learn as we grow up. Um, but, but you know, horror is, is an incredibly successful genre for mass production. We enjoy mm-hmm. being creeped out amongst others. Like, and certainly, like, the, the whole phenomenon of telling ghost stories, like, it's much more frightening if you're in a group of people and they're all going, oh, my God, I'm shrieking, than if you're just by yourself. And it's so frightening, but you, you kind of share that animal experience together. So I guess you're tapping into to both that solitary and communal experience. Yeah, yeah, ghost stories are fundamentally communal, aren't they? I hadn't really thought of those terms before, mm-hmm. but... But I think they, they require, an, or they suggest an audience in a way a lot of other literature doesn't. Uh, it's interesting, too, because I, mean, I think you kind of mentioned this, uh, Alexis, but um, Lovecraft was definitely part of the larger community himself. I mean, I, I know he did a lot of writing corresponding with um, you know, contemporaneous authors like uh, Robert Block and um, I'm trying to think of some other. You know, but, uh, yeah, but he did a whole uh, a book on, what was it, um, on, on how horror and or, or, or cosmic horror works and kind of just name checked everybody that he knew and was uh, friendly with. So that was, that, there was a super active community, I think with, you know, weird tales and uh, the, mm. the magazines that the, all these authors kind of, I think uh, mostly were very hungry and not well paid, but they were all kind of you know, in this <laughs> together. <laughs> that's, that's I mean, that's, that's the indie dev community. I'm just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so for this community, I mean, it's um, and we kind of uh, touched on this earlier, but you know, what what kind of game is Cultus Simulator? What kind of player plays Cultus Simulator? Who is this for? Uh, one of the the things we've said in the past is a joke that isn't really a joke, is that Cultus Simulator, like Thunder Sea and Fall in London, you, you have to pass the reading comprehension test to get in. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, you know, rules out uh, players, not only who, who can't pass the test, but more importantly, aren't interested in taking it. You know, if, you, if you're not going to want to read text, then the game is, 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 is not for you, and that means an immediate uh, demographic. But it, it's, it's, I think it's... Uh, it is a game for players who... Um, want to have their attention demanded. So I don't mean it's the difficult game, although parts of it are difficult. I don't mean um, that it is, uh, uh, you know, it's not like an MMO or a moment that is going to take up all your time forever, but it's absolutely not that. But it's not meant to be the kind of game that you play on autopilot. It's meant to be the kind of game that you think about where you're playing and you continue to think about after you finish playing it. Like a good book, or like a Lynch film, or like having seen something at night that you don't quite understand. And if those, any of those things sound appealing, then it's your kind of game. And if those things don't sound appealing, then I think it's, it's probably not. Fair enough. In more practical and demographic terms, you keep on trying to find, you know, what kind of people, if you like Game X, would you, would you like Cultist Simulator? Um, somebody suggested city building games today. Uh, because I think it's something about setting up the, the, the resource patterns and juggling uh, sure. dangers that appear, you know, crossover with like Frostpunk or, or um, even Northgard. Uh, obviously, 
it, it looks like, just like you said, is a card game, and, and often card games require sort of attention um, and uh, and are fundamentally abstract. So I think you know, if you like a card game, it's, it's probably going to be with that sort of thing. But the thing about making experimental games, it is deliberately experimental. That was what Weather Factory's remit was. Um, makes it bloody hard to find the crossovers. Yeah, I ran a series of the world's least rewarding um, Facebook ads uh, A-B testing <laughs> to try and figure out who our audience was way back when. And I don't know if I'm just really bad at my job or if, if it's actually quite hard to tell, but I found nothing of use um, in those results. I think it's most basic, um, something you've kind of already alluded to, that this is a game for people who like thinking about things. This isn't a game for people who want to escape from a stressful work day or a problem in their life um, and just go and, and, and shoot things and get sparklies. Although there is very, I'm not insulting those games, like they're really fun and there's, you know, uh, a reason why we keep making them. Um, but I think you mentioned, uh, like, you know, the books earlier. And mm-hmm. I think if, if you think of kind of escapist games as, as the chiclet of the games industry, I think without being, <laughs> without being up ourselves, I think we are more kind of like Umberto Echo stuff. I'm not, oh saying, my God. I'm not saying particularly brilliant, but I am saying that, that we kind of want you to think about it more than just read the story and I'm done with the story. And one of the things that we've, you know, we mentioned at the start of this conversation that, that we've been through the kind of genre taglines. We've said, you know, this is a strategy game, this is a narrative game, this is a Lovecraftian game, and consistently Lovecraftian has been the thing that that, that seems to align people most significantly with the game itself. And that's not because we are Lovecraft inspired, although of course we are. I think it's because it implies a state of mind in a way that strategy game does not. So you can say city building is interesting, but I read that as city building requires you to pay attention to a resource mm-hmm. and to be aware that there are multiple systems in play at once and that you have to manage them. And that is obviously a really significant part of playing Copter Simulator. But it's also that you, you, this isn't like a clicker, although ironically this came out of a clicker. Mentality. Yeah, one of the one of the early influences in the design was was exactly clicker games because you have these slow cycles of of repetition and and, and unlocking. Um, and I originally was trying to make a um, a clicker game, and I just wanted to do a bunch of things that didn't fit in that framework, so I abandoned it very early. But I think so. Here, 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 here's a thing to to try to save us from sounding completely fucking up ourselves. I mean, I say I can say this because I didn't write the game, so you can't say anything complimentary about the writing, otherwise you will sound like that. But the thing is, you, know, you, you say what kind, of, what kind of people play it, what kind of people want to play it. It's very hard to say. It's the kind of game that has a lot of reading and is slow and is thoughtful without suggesting, you know, it's a game for intellectuals. Uh, and, and I think the, the point I want to make is that is not the same thing as the quality of the game. So somebody pointed out to me a long time ago um, that Art House is a genre not a badge of quality, right? If you yeah. go and see a film, you can tell very quickly whether it's meant to be an art house film. If it's got lots of long, static takes, mm-hmm. um, if it's got people having sort of downbeat conversations, if it hasn't got much incidental music, it's probably an art house film. And you get shit art house films and great art house films. And this, I guess, is an art house game. It doesn't mean it's a good art house game. You get a lot of shit art house games, but it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it's looking for people who are have those those affinities and you see that with uh, indie music as well there's you know you've got your uh party rock and then your more difficult um you know complicated stuff which it doesn't always work um but yeah. you can definitely tell that the the goal is definitely different so i can yeah. see that that makes sense um so uh the cult simulator releases into the wild um next thursday the 31st of may uh, it does how, doesn't it 
It does. Yeah. It does. Well done. I'm very impressed. <laughs> okay. Uh, how do you guys feel about uh, about the? You know, obviously this has been a multi-year process. I mean, I'm sure it's been a lot of work. Um, you ready? Nervous? Um, how do you feel? So, so we're ready. But first of all, it has not been a multi-year process, really. I did um, uh, I did a, the original prototype in 2016, um, and then I didn't work with it for most of 2017 because I was working with a bunch of other studios doing my narrative owning thing. So the total development cycle of a culture simulator is is a little over 10 months. Oh, that's not bad. Okay. Because I do remember, I think I was, um, yeah, I, I, I remember. Yeah, we've talked about, talking about it way back then. Yeah, that, like, when I was a game for but it, it spent a lot of time in the freezer because I, I, I was working on the stuff. And again, this is, this is the remit. Is we, we wanted to get something experimental of a good quality out of the door and then iterate on it, put out DLC for it, think about the next projects, all the rest of it. So we're feeling good. This whole game has been built to a timetable. We have so far hit 100% of our deadlines. We've got a little bit intense about um, hitting deadlines. Um, and we've also been pretty conscientious about not working overtime. And the last, last, last like month, two months has been has been busy. But I think um, we are ready, as you yeah. said. Um, I, I hope that a launch next week goes goes well technically, and, and people like it, and all the signs are pointing towards like a game that some people like won't, won't enjoy, and that's fine. But but a lot of people will, which is always what we wanted. Um, but I think without going too deep into my like production nerd hole here. Um, there's a big difference between making a game and releasing a game or making a game mm. and finishing a game. And one of the things that we've really come to terms with in the last couple of months is, you know, we set out to do this really weird experimental game. And I think we, we really achieved all of the goals that we set at the start of the project, which is all you can ask for really in, in a project. Um, but one of the things we didn't necessarily conceive um, at the start of the project is that basically every creative wants everyone to tell them that their game is the best thing ever um, and, and for you to change the landscape of, of any, you know, game in the future um, and, and if you deliberately set out to make a humble experimental game you, you cannot expect to to do a kind of I don't know portal mm-hmm. um, so I hope that we do very well and like I said all the signs point to the fact that people like it which is great um, but we've had to re- sort of shift how we're thinking about the game in terms of saying yeah, this is what we wanted to make we could spend another six months on it and we could polish it up and we could add extra bits of content in, which I know that Alexis is particularly keen to do mm-hmm. because he's the designer. So I think the designer's burden is all they can think of at any project when they worked really hard and created something wonderful is steal its flaws, um, which, which is a very sad fit of affairs. Um, but, but, you know, we have achieved what we wanted to do with this game. So I'm just really keen to get it out there and see what people make of it. And then it's right on it. No, this is not, not like... Now make it uh, better. <laughs> But again, you know, the, the idea was to get it live at a quality we were happy with, mm-hmm. then to add content to it because there's a lot of content. I think content that's the key like thing. I think it's not iteration. We're not releasing a yeah. game that we've not the game we want to make. This is the game we want to make. But the plan is to to enlarge the world because it's built specifically to to make DLC and make extra content really easy to add and and fit in sensibly. And that's part of the genius of the card system. Um, we talk about it often as like a kind of premium fall in London, um, in as much as it's not a free-to-play game that you have to feed every month, but it is a game that we have deliberately built to be fed at some point in the future um, in a variety of mouthfuls. Um, the pithier thing I should have said when you mentioned fall in London earlier, Ian, was the one thing I took away from fall in London most was I'm never making another fucking free-to-play game as long as I'm here. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, there are good reasons to do it at the time, and it's, it's done very right by far better, but oh my God, I... I 
<laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that again. Uh, it is a big commitment. It is a, it's a big commitment, and it? it covers every aspect of, of, of the game design. But I, I mean, two things. One, we, we, we're in a state now where we could um, push the release button tomorrow if we needed to, uh, and, and you know we wouldn't have followed a few rough edges, but, but the game would have gone gold now. Um, if, if we were in a, a, an era we still needed to print a master disc as an indie dev. And the other thing is, I've been more acutely aware than ever that the time you get best at making a game is when you are 80% through the process of making that game. Yeah. And that a whole two months, Lottie will tell you, I spent a lot of my time sort of bagging my head against the wall and wailing, why did I think of that in January? And I literally, we were on a plane to a conference in Croatia and I had an idea, um, which I think has improved the game more than any other single change in the last three months, which I coded on my laptop on the plane because, you know, I hadn't thought of it until that moment. And, and, and the problem is you think, well, you 80% of the way through making the game, you have all these ideas that will improve it. So what you do is you extend the development by another six months. But then 80% of the way through six months, you'll get even better at making the game. At some point, it's like raising a kid. You have to shove a little fucker out the door. And I hope that, you know, supporting it post-launch means we get a bit of a compromise, that we can support our, our, our kid out in the world and keep on um, uh, adding content and polishing features and balance. But, but yeah, some of this is learned to let go. Do you have plans for, uh, I mean, I, you've, you've mentioned it explicitly, but uh, have you started kind of putting together new story modules or um, scenes? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's got to be going in your head right now, right? It's something that we've talked about for a long time. It's actually something that we promised Kickstarter back as way back in September of last year. Um, something called the Petrol Edition is, is a kind of um, incentive for people to back the game early, which basically means that they get all DLC free for life. Um, so we obviously have to commit to doing some DLC to make that worthwhile. Um, and the way that we're thinking of doing it, although we haven't confirmed specifically what that DLC will be yet, is we will um, probably centre it around a variety of different roles. So at the minute you have legacies, um, which start you off with different sources and with a slightly different narrative, as I'm sure you know. Um, at the minute we have what? We have a, an aspirant, uh, essentially a sort of uh, 1920s aristocrat. We have a doctor and we have a detective. And we're thinking in the future we could add things in like um, a person, like a family man who was responsible for, for a child. Um, and, you know, yeah. do you choose to, to look after your kid? Because I think that will tug a lot of emotional and basic human uh, feelings that, that most players will have. Or do you choose to kind of do, do the morally bad thing and, and still invest in the occult? Um, or would you like to play as one of the summoned creatures that you could previously only summon in previous games? Um, so I think there is a lot of um, a lot of space for us to add some very interesting stories in the world that you build, and that's that's partly the eighty percent thing that you're talking yeah. about. You know, the skeleton is now down, and it's choosing how to dress the. Course. Yeah, so I've got a bunch of half implements <laughs> of things that that uh, won't make it in for launch, but will be released as, as a mixture of free updates and DLC afterwards, where you you approach the occult through different roles effectively. So at the moment, you're you know you approach it um, through naked desperation or, or idle curiosity or, or if you take the detective legacy you're actually hunting down followers from um uh from the previous game um and, and i want more avenues of approach uh to that so so more opportunities to play apostles of your previous character who've come through in, into the next game um or play one of the 
dancers at the occult nightclub um, visiting the game. Priest. Or the disgraced priest, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly keen on. Yeah. Always up for priests. And as you said, uh, Lottie, I mean, it does just lend itself to so, I mean, the, just the structure of the game, the way it works, uh, you can just throw new, I don't, I mean, obviously this would require balancing, they have to work with each other, but I mean, just in terms of the concepts, I mean, slotting new characters or um, events in is, uh, it, it, it happens very naturally, or uh, it, it, you can imagine this happening very easily. Yeah, that was absolutely the intention. Was that it was it was an extensible game for the beginning. It's it's are we have seventy thousand words of content now. Seventy one thousand. Seventy one thousand. It's a, it's a cool seventy one. There's 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 a novel's worth of content in, in in there already, but but it's it's in a state to to grow um, as fast as we can apply time to it. Exciting. All right. Well, um, I don't want to uh, impringe on your uh, time anymore, but I really appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, talk with, talk about this with me, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what the uh, full... Well, I'm looking forward to actually talking to people about this game once it comes out. <laughs> That's, uh... Well, thank you so much for playing it um, early when you did. And yeah, we really enjoyed the stream. Yeah, it was great. Well, I'm glad, I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be playing more of that for sure, so uh, I've, I've been keeping up with the updates and uh, still uh, banging my head against some of these, uh, some of the early game puzzles, really, but having a good time so uh, <laughs> anyway uh but thank you so much alexis and lottie uh and uh best of luck with the launch thank, thank you. you very much all right have a good okay night. see you now. bye, bye. cheers